In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Happy Days, Barney Miller, Grease, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Michael Eisner, my guest today, had a hand in bringing all of these projects to life. At ABC, he helped turn the network from number three to number one in primetime, daytime, and children's television. While he was president of Paramount Pictures, the company moved from last place to first among the six major studios. But Eisner is best known as the former chairman and CEO of the Walt Disney Company, a position that he held for over two decades. Michael Eisner grew up and started his career in New York but an early trip out west changed that. I asked where the people stayed that went to L.A. I'd never been to L.A. And they said the Bel Air Hotel. And I got to the Bel Air Hotel, and there were swans, and there was flowers, and there were weddings and all this stuff. I called my wife, and I said, I think we should move to L.A. And then I, it took me three years to manipulate it, to, to convince ABC that being in New York was not going to be effective, that, that I was always a day late in getting... Casting, getting scripts, uh, uh, we were fourth among three, and nobody cared about ABC, and they paid us through the own stations. They couldn't even pay us through the network. They didn't have enough money, and and I was lucky because the things that I was in charge of just happened to turn to number one when I got there, so it looked like I did it. So when I said, you <laughs> you have to move to L.A., we have to, we have to do it in L.A., and in that era, L.A. was very laid back. People came in at 10, they left at 11, they, they, they looked like they were going to play golf. And Barry Diller and I both moved to L.A., and we were wearing suits, and we had this New York mentality, and we actually arrived early in the morning, and we stayed late, and we were type A's, and all of a sudden, ABC became a type A administration, and we eventually became number one, and even in prime time, with a movie of the week and a lot of other stuff. Spelling. Aaron Spelling. Yes. your era? It was. We convinced Aaron Spelling to uh, to make a direct deal with us, not to go through his agent. That created a lot of unpleasantness for me because the, I didn't realize the power of William Morris. They went to the chairman of, I forgot about this for about 30 years, they went to the chairman of, of ABC and asked for both of us, Barry and I, to be fired because we were not, we, we convinced. Who was running Morris then, Norman Brokaw? Oh no, it was uh, Abe Lasfogel. It was uh, even above Norman. And they, and Leonard Goldenson called us into his office. We thought I thought we were going to be fired for for not dealing with the system and agreeing to the agency package commissions and all that stuff. And he put his hand across the table and congratulated us for trying to change the business. 
So but, I knew. But, but, but why, when you got out of college, did you go to television in the first place? What about it? No one in your family was in media, correct? No. Uh, I graduated from college. I was a pre-med. I was an English major. I then was a theater major because there was a girl that wouldn't date me. So I wrote a play for her, and then she still wouldn't date me, but I became a theater major. I went to Europe to become a writer for a year. I stayed a week, came back, and got a job as an usher. I got a job as an usher at NBC. I didn't know what I was going to do. I moved out of my parents' apartment. I found my own apartment. I thought that was pretty good. I was liberated. Um, and I became an usher. And I worked backstage with Jack Parr. I took telephone calls. I gave tickets at the Tonight Show. You liked it. I loved it. It was like fun. It was like it wasn't a job. And, and, and uh, I always liked theater. And, and I grew up in Manhattan. And every my kids always went to Chuck E. Cheese on their birthdays. But we, when I grew up in New York, you went to a show. You went to see, you know, Charlie's Aunt or Where's Charlie? You went to see South Pacific and Oklahoma and sure. Arthur Miller and all this stuff. So I really... Had it? Had yeah, the bug. I, I did. And then and then I just worked my way up at uh, at ABC. I, I really decided, actually, my father was kind of a gentleman farmer in, in Vermont, and, and he bought the apple orchard next to him, and then he bought a lot of apple orchards, and we'd been in the apple business for 50 years, my family, and we made a profit twice in 50 years. <laughs> and I decided that I was not going to be a business in a business where God was my partner. I just couldn't take the... The frosts and the lack of blossoms for the bees and the but but I decided I was going to do I actually you know something I wasn't really equipped to do anything else. Describe for me uh, what made Diller successful because he because he becomes a huge figure in your life and a, and, and a big uh, you know mentor in your life and you follow him around for quite a bit where he takes you with him and, and elevates you. What made Diller Diller? Well, first of all, he's extremely smart. Right. So let's start there. And and uh, he came comes from uh, Los Angeles, and he understood. He worked in the William Morris office, and you know, like I worked as a page, he worked as in, in the mail room. We're exactly the same age, although he looks much older than me. I know. Um, <laughs> we started at ABC within three months of each other. He worked for a vice president who actually had power. I worked for a vice president who was being fired. I didn't know it. Uh, and he was uh, brusque, and he was dominating, but I could deal with him. And then we all did different things. I mean, I did, when I was doing daytime, he was doing this. Eventually, I went to California to work for him. And then eventually, he left ABC and went to Paramount. And then I joined him. So you and he were running the network in California. How long were you there in California before he goes to Paramount? He went a year after I came to California. I went three years later. I was I was kind of so you stayed at ABC while he's at Paramount for two years. I was very D class A. I was TV and the movies were it and all the important people were in the movies, the Bob Evans and the Sue Mangers and all those people. And I was still doing TV, but the movies weren't doing so well in that era. And so somebody came to me from another company, and Barry heard about it. And he called me up, and he brought me over there. Uh, he said, I, res I resolved my problems, one of which is I wasn't returning my phone calls quickly and things like that, so I resolved that. And other than the fact that I kept calling movies shows, which drove him out of his mind, and until we had said... You want to go to a taping? Yes, it was, <laughs> I, I, I was still talking, you know, uh, Happy Days, and, and, yeah. and he was talking, you know, Atlantic City. So... Uh, but then when we hit with Saturday Night Fever and Grease and Heaven Can Wait and Foul Play and all that, it was okay that I called but, them but, shows. Right. But no, but no, but so describe 
I mean, this is a, a broad question, but describe uh, what was the movie business like? You're at Paramount from 1976 to 1984. You're 34 years old. I mean, you're. I mean, there are there there are younger men that have captained some of these companies, but that's still pretty young. And you're over there with him running the show from 76 to 84. What was the state of the movie business in 76? Well. Uh it was it was uh, up and down. It wasn't as bad as five years earlier or seven years earlier when Easy Rider kind of changed right. the whole nature of the business. Paramount wasn't doing well, uh, but we decided we would use our, like minor leagues to baseball, television and movies, we would use our, our kind of creativity in a box. We would create a financial box and then anything inside the box was okay. You just had to be responsible. And we, over the next... Uh, eight, ten years were number one almost every year. Warner Brothers was number one when we weren't those years. And Warner Brothers had a completely different philosophy. They dealt only with stars. They would send Steven Spielberg's dog to Hawaii to meet them. They, sure. they had... The Steve, know, this is Steve Ross? The Steve Ross. They had, you know, villas in Mexico. And we were like traveling coach. And uh, half of our... Ross movie, pulled it off though, didn't he? He did, except for we were number one financially and we were number one at the box office, all on strong ideas, young or talented directors, new talent, old talent too. They accused us of waiting outside of Betty Ford a Rehab Center and getting actors at a, a discount. We, we did Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Uh, I guess that was our first movie at, at, at Disney, but we kept this philosophy going with Bette Midler and Nick Nolte, who both had graduated from there, who did a pretty good movie for us. Sure. So our strategy was... They needed a hit. And we needed a hit, and it worked well. And I've done a lot of movies with them that all worked, not all, but most. I think the idea of we were always 20% or more, 40% of times less than the industry average in movies, and we always were number either one or two. By the way, for 30 years, 26 of those years, I was number one or number two. Always being economically thoughtful, but going with instinct, good material, interesting material, different material, as best we could. Now, but, but so that, that that leads to a question that's a really important one for me, which is, um, and I'm not saying this in a critical way, but you know, you never spent a moment as a salaried salaried employee on the set of a film in any of the crafts. You know, you weren't a sound mixer, or you didn't direct films, you didn't do costumes, you didn't do any editing, what have you. You've been on the set of films your entire career as an executive. Describe for people what that creative process is like, meaning, you, for example, in Paramount in the late 70s and early 80s, what number of creative staff did you have that advised you on what films you should be making and should not be making? How many people did you listen to? Well, I was kind of in the weeds. I did a lot of it myself. There was a guy by the name of Don Simpson who was in the story department, and he was the only person that I found when I arrived, other than Barry, that I trusted, so... What about him did you trust? He just seemed smart, he worked, he, he was, uh, came from Alaska, uh, I would, uh, he was single, I was married with a bunch of kids, we would go on, we would go on uh, film uh, testing and all sorts of different states around the country, I loved being with him, he told me all these great stories that I couldn't participate in. That, that, and, he was a different and, breed. He, he was just, uh, he finally had a problem with drugs. But, he, but 
that's somebody I listened to. But but mainly, I was an English major mostly. Uh, I was a theater goer mostly all my life, and I love the written word. I can't tell you how a movie is made. My son is a director. I can't even talk to him about. It. I don't understand even where the film goes. What I'm think I'm good at is recognizing good ideas, really good with the written word, and I'm good in the post-production area. I can see a film and, 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 and work with it. As far as how, I just read about Ang Lee making this movie. They just got a tremendous reception technically in, in Las Vegas. I, if somebody said to me you had to do that, it would be like saying to me you had to operate on somebody's brain. My strength is so limited to the idea, the script, the casting, the director, the putting it together, and bringing I, the most talented people together you can, and trying to find somebody that nobody else is those is talented, defining the people that are talented that have yet been not discovered. I always say that we don't. I said we. I said we were working on this film I was doing, and Alden Ehrenreich, who actually played my son, he played Kate Blanchett's son in Blue Jasmine that I did with Woody, and we were saying, no, we don't just want Alden Ehrenreich. We want cheap Alden Ehrenreich before he really hits it big and becomes too expensive for us. But so, so essentially, you well, let, me are, just, let me let me say this because I'm always accused of trying to find the new inexpensive. There are many actors who are worth everything they get paid. Give me an example. Well, you're an example, of no, course. No, but, but that's very... I mean, like well, Hanks, Cruz. Yeah, there are, there are actors who, by very nature of being in the movies, you get two things. One, they're actually very good. When you sit and talk to Dustin Hoffman, it is not an accident that he's been so good. He really is good. So you get what you pay for. Secondly, there are actors who actually appeal to people. The, the movie would not perform as well without those actors. So for that, in the business of the movies, it is totally worth paying up, whatever it takes. Who was a filmmaker you loved working with back then, in the early days? Who's someone you said, God, this is a great experience? Scorsese, the same people that, that, that you would name, Alan Parker. Uh, What'd you do with Alan? Uh, he made a, a small movie, I'm trying to think of the name of it, in the, in the 70s, I cannot think of it. After fame or before fame? Before fame, right. really, really early. Um, it, it just was, a, you know, there's something about dealing with any, in any field. It could be, uh, my son is in, the, is in the cottage cheese business, my young son. Uh, <laughs> and and okay. it, I, I'm serious. So. He didn't yeah. want to be in the entertainment business. My other two sons in the entertainment business. He went, he's kind of an entrepreneur. He went to the grocery stores he looked at what hadn't been innovated. You know, yogurt had been innovated. Everything else had, been, had innovation. Cottage cheese had not. I said, are you crazy? He did it's this. His apple orchard. He, he is in every Whole Foods now with his good culture cottage cheese. And meeting the young people that he has in cottage cheese is like meeting a new young actress, a new young actor, a new young director. They feel about cottage cheese the way you felt about TV back there in New maybe, York. Maybe, maybe. But the fact is, I really like... I like my children's friends that all went to film school. I talk to all of them. I keep saying to my wife, I'd rather talk to them than talk to our friends, and she gets very upset about that. But uh, no, I like I like the new. But but so in at Paramount, you're there, and 
Diller's the head guy, and you're with Diller. And explain to people who don't know how Diller acquiesces to you, and you say to him, these are the movies we're going to make. Did he ever, Did you confer with him? Did he ever say to you, no, I don't like this? Or were you completely on your own? You were self-determining. By the, the, and how many releases on average were you doing back then? We were probably doing 14 to 20 releases. Um, he, we were a team. Uh, I did not do anything on my own. He did not do anything on his own. I mean, it, we talked 20 times a day. Uh, mostly he would say, I hate it. And I would say, well, then, Barry, we have no films. And then we would argue about the film. Or he would call me up and say, we talked about Warren Beatty before. Warren has a film that is in, 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 a problem at Warner's. Uh, let's read it in the next hour. And if we say yes, Warren will do it at Paramount. So that took an hour. Uh, some films, American Gigolo or, or other films, uh, Officer and a Gentleman, Terms of Endearment, took longer. But uh, we discussed, we argued, always in private. In public, we were one. A team. A team. And uh, it just worked. He was, uh, he's a very good critic. Uh, and we, we discussed it a lot. What's a movie you bet on and you were wrong? What's a movie you really went to the mattresses for? You said, we got to make this movie. Did you well, just name one? I never had to go to the mattress. We always came to an agreement, but we made a movie called White Dog, which I still think was misunderstood. I hated that movie. White Dog, my God, I couldn't stand White Dog. Well, you were not alone. I'm so I can't believe you're confessing you made that, because I always wondered, I wonder if I ever meet the guy, the greenlit White Dog, man, am I going to give him a piece of my mind. I want my money back. You want to hear what the idea was supposed Please. to be? Because a lot of times you go from the script to the stage to the screen, and it's not what you thought it was <laughs> Tell going me about to be. It. Many times it's been the opposite. It's, it's, it's turned out so much better than I thought it would be, whether a Lion King or whatever it was. There's an actress, and she's a young actress, and she's driving to make a commercial, and she's, she hits a dog, a white dog, right German Shepherd. And she is so upset, she goes, she takes the dog to the vet, she brings the dog home. So the first act is her love affair with this dog, and they're inseparable. And then she brings the dog to a... A, a, a set to make a commercial and somehow in the set the dog sees somebody walk across and goes after him to make a longer story short the whole second act is the dog is somehow a racist this dog is a racist she goes to the supermarket and the dog's in the car and an African American family walks by and this dog goes nuts the bottom line is you so find... So it really is a white dog. It's white on many levels. No question about it. The, then the, the, the third act, you find out that this white dog was trained in a southern state to be an attack dog. And so she takes the dog to another trainer to untrain the dog in this thing. And eventually the trainer that to deprogram the to dog. deprogram and the whole idea of the film was supposed to be that prejudice is learned you aren't born with prejudice it's part of your environment it's part of your parents it's part of your community and you can if you're trained to be a racist you can be maybe trained to get at, at to not well we picked a director who was an action-oriented director it was a mistake he made a film that basically died we got killed for so that was a film that I really thought was an interesting idea with an interesting character that just never achieved what I wanted it to achieve. So I hope that the lesson for you was that you and Barry stopped bringing your Park Avenue and Beverly Hills lefty consciousness to 
the film slate? I mean, let's just make money and let's forget about deprogramming racist dogs. Was that the lesson for you? Or I never really was ever tried to make political films. I mean, we did make Reds. We made, we made any film that sounded interesting. It just happened, I thought, this idea of this white dog, and many people have made animal films, was an interesting twist. It, I was completely wrong. Now, obviously, the business is littered with, there's a lot of uh, twisted wreckage on the runway here of uh, people in your position who the opposite is true. There's movies that you say goodbye to that you don't want to make, and they go off and become big hits. What's an example of that for you, of somebody who took a movie from you and they jammed it into the hoop? Well, I had <laughs> we made a movie uh, with Goldie Hawn called Foul Play, and I'm very friendly with Goldie from that movie. And somebody presented uh, a movie to us, and, and I said to her, her uh, William Morris agent, but I saw a picture of her. She's kind of heavy. Uh, he said, oh, you, you ought to sit down with her. So I said, okay. So she came to the office, and she said, so you think I'm fat? She said, you know, I just had a baby. I said, I didn't know. I just said, it. please, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So then she pitched, uh, and correctly so, uh, Private Benjamin. One of my favorites. Right. So I met with her, and I said, and, and, and others, uh, and I said, I don't think there's a third act. The first act is great when you have the guy die at the wedding, <laughs> and, and Gold, Gold, Albert Brooks actually died at the wedding. And, and, Yale and, was her husband, Yale. And, right. And I thought Goldie Hawn is a, in the army. But you don't have a third act. So between not saying you have a third act and the next day, they went and sold it to Columbia. And the movie came out, was a giant hit. It still didn't have a third act. It didn't matter. It was this unbelievable hit. And it was kind of a lesson for me because I knew this from television, from the movie of the week, from Barry and I and all that stuff, that a really unbelievable concept, unbelievable concept, is kind of hard to kill. Especially in TV, where it's all about the promotion for the one time only. It's not like word of mouth. And this concept of Goldie Hawn playing Private Benjamin, you couldn't kill it. And I just was short-sighted about that because I just wanted a third act. And it was, I love that movie. It was stupid. It was stupid. Um, the, uh, eventually, I guess it's uh, what year does, not that we would remember this, but uh, eventually uh, Diller leaves Paramount. Uh, and you're hoping you're going to get that job, correct? Not really. What happened was um, Charlie Bluthorn, who was the CEO of Gulf and Western, which owned Paramount. Jeffrey would always do his impersonations for me. That's good. That's and so, good. And so would Bob Evans. Bob Evans was good at it. He's a good one, too. So he was a great guy. He died right. uh, very prematurely. And the guy that took over, Marty Davis, well, let me put it this way. When I heard on the radio he died... I called Barry up, and I said, Barry, you know, Marty died. And Barry said, I hope it was painful. That's, that's what we thought about this guy. <laughs> he, he was so difficult unpleasant. and so unpleasant and so nasty. And we worked for him for about a year and a half, and we both decided this is not the place to be. And Barry got involved with Fox, and I was thinking about going with him to Fox, and then the Disney thing came up out of the blue, and we both... How did the Disney thing come up? Because describe the shape the company was in at that time. Well, the company was in terrible shape. The company was being broken apart. It had a lot of uh, investors trying to break it apart. I know uh, Kikorian was trying to 
get the film library and Marriott was trying to get the hotels and it was over. And I was at camp at the mid-season with my kid and I got a call saying, do you have a contract at Paramount? And this was exactly at the time that I was not happy as Barry wasn't happening. I said, uh, no. And two weeks later, I was the CEO and chairman of Disney. Who makes that call? The board, uh, Frank Wells, who came as a president and I came as the chairman, Frank Wells kind of had been playing in this field for a year. And Frank Wells knew what they needed was a CEO who was creatively oriented. They could get CEOs who... They needed to make better movies. Yes, and they needed a whole vitality and and And, and Wells didn't want to be the chairman? Aggressively not. Right. He, had, he had taken over uh, Warner's at one point as the head guy, and then they did Exorcist too the next year, and then he didn't like having to make those decisions, and he wanted... He was the most selfless person I ever met. I mean, he, they wanted us to be co-chairman. And I said, I can't believe I said it because I had hated Paramount at that point. I said, no, I, these companies have to be run by one person has to be the, the so, so, So when, when Barry leaves, you're not pining for the job, his job at Paramount. You want out of there. You, do, yeah. you really don't want to stay. Yeah, within a week, I was gone. And within, did anybody with the name Disney, I mean, there's a small list here, but did, any, did anybody with the last name Disney, were they uh, pivotal in getting you to get that job as well? Roy, what was going on with those? But the family. Yeah, the well, the family was dysfunctional, as has been written about a lot. And and Walt Disney considered his, uh, his uh, nephew, Roy, not up to anything. On the other hand, Roy looked like Walt, and Roy was still there on the board, and Walt had died 22 years earlier, and they treated Roy badly, and they didn't let him do anything, and he was part of this takeover to, to, to bring Disney to its knees, and he's the one that called me up, because I sat on a board for California Institute of the Arts next to him, I did, that's how I knew him, and he wanted this change, and he wanted, as he described, a out-of-control creative force uh, that was like his uncle. That's the way he described it. I said, I'm not going to give you that. I'm not your uncle, but I am maybe out of control and, 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 and ambitious. ambitious. And Well, I was less ambitious than I was. I just liked you know, the party I was going to. I liked – I'd never I'd been to – Disneyland twice with my kids. I liked that idea of building parks. I liked the idea of the real estate. I liked the idea of the If you movies. could put it all back together again the right way, it would be thrilling. Right. And they and what happened was the, this this family in, in Texas by the name of the Bass, the, you know, Sid Bass and his brothers, recognized the opportunity. And it was really interesting because they, the, the day before the last board meeting, they contacted us and they said they wanted Frank Wells, not me, because Frank had this Rhodes Scholar, legal, down. beautiful person, you know, very waspy, and I was this uh, different, let's put it that way. <laughs> and so Frank came over on a Saturday and I thought, well, maybe he's manipulating it because I didn't know him. And I said, well, let's call them in Texas. And we called them, and I had one speakerphone in my house. Frank had been, ran over because he was a runner, so he was soaking wet, dripping on our floor. And he and I called them who were in the office. There were about six of them in the office in Fort Worth. And I gave a kind of a Jimmy Stewart, 
you know, uh, uh, speech in front of Congress about how the Disney company had to be run from a creative point of view. It had to be about what is the movie? What is the theme park? What is television? How do you get back on television? How do you get to video? And it went on for maybe, I don't know, a minute. There was a pause of five seconds, and Sid Bass said, you're our guy, you should be chairman. And it was under Eisner's direction that Disney transformed from a film and theme park company into a global media empire. Explore the Here's the Thing archives. I talk with Lorne Michaels, the creator and producer of Saturday Night Live, about what he felt after the very first episode wrapped. I was the same way then that I am now. I only see the mistakes, and I tend to wear that up until about the second drink at the party. Even last week's show takes me really through midway through Sunday. It used to take me a couple days. I can get over it now in a day. Because you're always hoping that everything's going to work the way you were hoping it was going right. to work. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash fits. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is Michael Eisner, who is, among many other things, the former CEO of the Walt Disney Company. Eisner is shrewd and hardly risk-averse, yet he explains the rapid and astronomical growth of the company during his tenure in more magical terms. It just happened. I mean, the first day on the way to the office, uh, I got a call from CAA asking me 
whether we'd be interested in in uh, Golden Girls, which uh, I said yes. That was the first day. The f- second day was Paul Mazursky, who was having a bad relationship at Fox. Would we want to make Down and Out in Beverly Hills with, you know, turned out to be Bette Midler and Nick Nolte. So it was like going to a Chinese restaurant and picking the best choices. There was, there are always, which is what amazes me about the entertainers, which I love. There are a lot of choices. There are a lot of great things. The key is having an instinct, seeing what it is, seeing who's doing it, enthusiasm for it, uh, willing to fail, because you know, uh, uh, if you if you want to accelerate your 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 potential for success, you got to double your failure rate. I mean, that's kind of a, a Watson IBM theory. And it's true. And then you have to, you just go. You just but, do it. Now, now, did you think, though, that not that the live action division was underperforming or that they weren't earning as many awards, but was there a craving for more quality and more awards and things when you purchased Miramax? What was behind the Miramax purchase? Did you think you were going to buy some Oscars when you bought Miramax? No. Uh, when I was at Paramount, Charlie Blue would call up and say, I don't care about Oscars. I want you to win the Bank of America Award. I mean, that was he, well, that was what he was saying. I, I can't do the accent, but that you could do it. I, yeah, yeah. That, that's what he did. And I never thought about, honestly, I don't like re- research. I don't mind exit poll. You know, you do a movie and you see what the audience liked after they see it. I've never believed in asking an audience what they want. We never did research. We simply made movies and television that we thought was fun to make and interesting to make. We never thought about awards or any of that. You just did it day in and day out. So live action was easier because it's quicker and Disney needed stuff. We needed to get going. We had we didn't have a distribution company. We put out three movies a year. It was nothing. Uh, we had no international. Um, you know what? I don't know how it worked. I really don't know how it worked. It just did. And it's worked for me in this one little area, which is what, maybe I'm like an idiot savant in this one little area, which is, uh, being attracted to new ideas. It just, uh, I, it's not a job. I never thought it was a job. I never asked, you know, there was all this, a lot of publicity about it, how well I did financially, which I never, I never asked for anything. You didn't hold a gun to anybody's head. Yeah. I didn't even ask for anything. And so, so complaints to you about your compensation that just rolled off your back? No, because... I believe everything I read in the New York Times or anywhere, except for it's about me, and that is, I don't believe any of it. Right. So I, you know, you never like to, people say, oh, they don't care about criticism. You don't like to see it. I find the executives care more than the actress sometimes about the criticism. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's for sure. That's right. No, as I'm going in a car to Disney to meet the board the first day, somebody says to me, what deal do you want? And I said, well, just, I'll just take whatever my Paramount deal was. And that was the last negotiation I had for seven years. We did so well. The company went from billion five to $80 billion in value. And I benefited from that. Sure. You, you know, should. We, we, we bought the Los Angeles Angels and we started the Anaheim Ducks. And people talk about salaries of players. You know, to find somebody that can throw a 100-mile-an-hour pitch if that person exists, that's a competitive environment. Now, the fact of the matter is he can only do it for about six years. And many actors who get paid well don't get paid well for 40 or 50 years. No. They, they, have, they have a high point. 
I do not have a problem with salaries. I don't even have problems with executive salaries as long as executive salaries are tied to performance. Sure. When they're when executives get paid when the performance is bad and they manipulate the system. They make money when the company's losing money. That to me is is atrocious. But but uh, our system is what it is. And and by the way, when I was making seventy five dollars a week as an usher. And I would read about the chairman of, at that point it was RCA or NBC, making all this money. I thought that was great. That was like, oh, someday maybe I can get to that level. And almost everybody I deal with in the entertainment business, almost everybody, comes from very modest backgrounds. And they've worked, there's no caste system. You know, when you read a, a, a writer script, you don't care who that writer is, what that writer looks like. If it's good, it's good. It's just, it's just, it's based on merit. You stay at Disney till 2005. You stay longer. And then eventually you leave. Why did you want to leave in 2005? Well, it was a different era. Describe uh, how different. Well, it was different in that we had gone from nothing to this giant company. Uh, I was, I had had a heart issue 20 years earlier. I was still had 10 scripts sitting in my bedstand unread every night. Uh, I was still traveling all over the world. There was a lot of dissension. I was, I was in conflict with the Weinsteins. I was in conflict a little bit with Steve Jobs. I was in conflict with Roy Disney. And my point of view was, and in hindsight, I wasn't political enough. Now I read all about politics and Maureen Dow the other day about running, doing what's right as opposed to doing what's political. I was doing, toward the end of my uh, career at Disney, through my arrogance and success, always what I thought was right and never what I thought was political. So even though the Weinsteins were the darling of New York and the media, we were losing a fortune because Harvey wanted to be more than what he's great at, which is a kind of independent filmmaker. He wanted to make very expensive films. He wanted to be in all these other businesses. So I was in conflict with him. Books. All the stuff. And so we had a difficult time. Steve Jobs was very difficult. Uh, no. <laughs> right. And I was the point man on, on that. And, you know, we made before he really knew about it, Toy Story, and then he got involved, and we did, we did you know, well, but we were in conflict. And um, Roy Disney, who was not of talent, was trying to do a lot of things that I thought were wrong creatively and had to stop him. So I was in conflict. So the combination of that conflict, even though we had performed fantastically for 20 years, we were, everything was, it was and which Bob Iger has then taken and done great jobs with. Um, it was time. I was, you know, like 65, and it was time to go do other things, and which I have done. Uh, I have a show on Netflix called BoJack Horseman, which I think is... We I talk, want to talk to you about that, about new media. About, right, which is, which is uh, great fun and doing great. And uh, I'm doing a lot of other things, and I now am able to exercise from 8 to 9 in the morning. I don't have to be at the office at 7.30, and maybe I'm still alive because of that. The um, 
just to, just to touch on this, because then this is the last thing I want to talk about about that past. There's so much more we could cover, but I'm just so intrigued by having someone who has had the incredible success. When you talk, I'm not just saying this to flatter you, but as you said, to go from however many billion to eighty billion, and uh, the Roy Disney's of the world, I'm going to assume that they were major stockholders. You put a lot of money in their pocket when you inflated the value of that company, no doubt. And you know, you're considered one of the most successful motion picture executives in history. You know, you and uh, Ross and uh, Daly and Semmel had that great run at Warner Brothers and just printed money with Batman and all these Mel Gibson movies. And, you know, what you did at Disney is just unparalleled. And then the time comes for you to end. And you don't make uh, Katzenberg the, the, your replacement when you leave. Was that a tough decision for you? Well, that was 10 years earlier. Right. That was when Frank Wells died. Fra Frank died in 94. Uh, correct. <clears throat> and the board came to me, particularly Roy and said, if you make Jeffrey Katzenberg anything, we will start a proxy fight. Why do you think that they said that? Honestly, I think Jeff... He wasn't that material to be the head guy? It was, well, with Roy, it was emotional. Jeffrey Katzenberg is great at being charming and great at dealing with important people and great at all of those things. He was a son... Roy was, was made titular head of animation, he really didn't have anything to do. Jeffrey was in charge, and Jeffrey ignored him right. because his ideas were terrible. And I would say to Jeffrey often, Jeffrey, just treat him like you would treat an agent. Right. Treat him well. Just be nice to him. And Jeffrey, and I understand it, didn't have the time. Jeffrey was on a treadmill going 1,000 miles an hour, and he didn't have the time to be politic with Roy. And when Frank died, Roy made it clear that this guy was not going to be promoted. That and the fact I personally thought he wasn't ready, mm -hmm. the combination of those two things led him to leave and start DreamWorks. So he leaves and starts DreamWorks, and then you get into the whole situation with Ovitz. Well, now it's about a year later, um, and we buy Capital Cities ABC. Right. And um, now I am... Had had heart surgery. <laughs> Jeff, Ten scripts in the bin next to the bed. Jeffrey's gone. Uh, Harvey's chewing on your ankle. And my wife is saying you need help. And Michael, whom I've known since he was in his young 20s, seemed like he could be a solution. And I was very ambivalent about that because I knew him well. My wife was very much in favor of it. My middle son told me I was crazy. And I did it. And... It was a terrible mistake. He was, he had, he had. Not a people person. Well, he was, he always ran a company where he didn't smell them. He sold them. He didn't care about what it was. He didn't care that you were in X movie. He cared how much money you were getting in X movie. He was all about, uh, he was an agent. He was an investment banker type. I mean, it was, that was his metric. And right. he did a very good job for his very. clients. And he, and by the way, I was the key person when the five of them left William Morris. I brought all five of them in the second week they left at ABC. Had every I had a specials, daytime movies, everybody in the room, and they weren't allowed to leave the room till they gave each one of those guys a deal. And he had good talent, but not what he used to, what he had later. And my motivation was he told me he wasn't going to charge ten percent commission, package commission, like William Morris, which of course they still they did quite soon thereafter. So my idea was, I needed help. He would be a good successor. 
and it lasted a year. It was a disaster. And he had, a, as everybody knows, the whopping uh, compensation package, which was adjudicated even a year after you left. It just wasn't resolved in 2006, apparently, in Delaware, correct? Again, completely, which would not surprise you, misrepresented in the media. Okay. The, the fact of the matter is, even if it had been a $40, $140 million in a company the size of Disney, which it wasn't, it just wasn't working. We couldn't bring the company down by a mistake. It would have been worse if you kept them. And it was my mistake. It was my, and by the way, just so you know, every newspaper, all our shareholders, including Warren and everybody else, when I made the announcement, called me to say it was the most brilliant thing I'd ever done at Disney. Mm -hmm. That I brought in the guy. Well, who was, I wouldn't say that. There's other good things you did. No, at Disney, they, as far as as far <laughs> as executive, a tough business decision. That this was, uh, I was bringing in the person who was on the cover of Newsweek as the most powerful man in Hollywood, who made the Mashusta deal to buy Universal and all this stuff. I was bringing in a real leader, and it didn't work. Right. What kind of stuff are you working on now? BoJack Horseman is with Netflix. Now, people always complain to me and say, that, you know, Netflix is great in one sense, but there's no back end in Netflix. I mean, television has changed exponentially since you were running ABC. And then when you bought ABC, I mean, one minute you're fetching, I don't know who you're fetching coffee for over there in the beginning in the 70s when you're working there as a as a as an usher or whatever, your first job. Anybody then, that asked. Right. Anybody that, anybody that told you, <laughs> listen, kid. A lot of laundry. <laughs> dry cleaning. <laughs> I want this tie pressed. And light starch in those shirts. But the um, uh, then, of course, you have this fabled career and you buy ABC, your company. What's changed for you? What, what amazes you the most about the Way it is now. Well, first of all, the secret on Netflix, just to answer that, is it's fantastic as a producer. I have, in the first season, I have sent profit checks to the uh, to the talent. I did the same thing with the show I did on, on on Nickelodeon. I don't believe in this idea of producing for so much more money than you get in. So we've had a very good relationship with Netflix, and everybody that works on this show, Raphael. Bob Waxberg, who's a genius, it's an animated adult type of show, um, loves it. So I'm doing a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, I am. I own a company called Tops, which you may remember did baseball cards. Of course. And we are with the gum in it. With the gum in it, but we are now a global company. We're very big in international football, Premier League, Bundesliga, Champions League, soccer, soccer, right? Um, I am. Uh, I got about twenty investments in. New ideas, new new uh, digital companies. I'm an advisor to my three children who don't listen, but I'm still <laughs> an advisor to them. And uh, doing TV and exercising from eight to nine o'clock in the morning. Hopefully. I have time to exercise. Uh, like right now, I don't have thirty phone calls to return because something is happening. Well, you do, but someone else can return them for now. Now, your son. What's something you wanted him to know as he was coming up in the business? You said you knew nothing about directing and putting movies together, but you know a hell of a lot about the movie business. What did you want him to know? Well, the one thing that I'm proud of my three sons, and they all have great spouses and tons of grandchildren and all that, is that they're decent. And uh, I think it's probably hard to follow a successful father. Um, they don't seem to think that. J.J. Abrams' dad was a successful TV producer, and he has certainly eclipsed his father, Jerry. I made many movies with, uh, with, Jerry? with, with Jerry and Jerry Eisenberg, the two of them that were a team, and right. we made a lot of movies of the week with them. Right. Yeah, by the way, the people who are in the entertainment business are all my children's age. They're yeah. all, a lot of them are sons of friends of mine. Right. I can't get them on the phone, but they're still <laughs> friends of, right. sons of friends of mine. 
You're not the Eisner that they want to call back anymore. There's another Eisner they want to call back. You know, I remember going to soccer fields, with AYSO soccer with my sons growing up, and somebody, or going to a hockey game, two of my sons played hockey, and they would yell, Eisner, like, get on the field. And I was halfway on the field. <laughs> what? No, I'm, I'm yeah, Eisner. Yeah. Now I don't even move. I went a while back, uh, a while back, I don't really I don't really see that many things, but a while back when the last Batman came out that Christian Bale was in, and the trailers came on in advance, and I must say I'm not a squeamish person. I mean I'm I'm not a I mean I'm somebody who's liked action films, and if they have a violent component that serves the story, that's okay. But uh, um, my God, I couldn't believe how violent these movies were. They had to have eight or ten trailers, and everyone, someone was by with their physical hands in some martial arts uh, uh, ballet, was just taking someone apart, or guns and some other advanced weaponry. Is that something that you've seen change in terms of the content of the movie business over the last several years? It's disturbed you, or you don't feel that way? Well, at Paramount, we must have made 200 films, and we only made two action films, and that entire time, and we were still very successful. At Disney, uh, we did make Star Trek at Paramount, and at Disney, most of our action stuff was modest. I am hoping that this live-action films that you described is like car- are like cartoons, that people in the audience realize it's fiction, realize it's all bubblegum activity. It's silly, ultimately. Uh, right, because if it begot violence in a susceptible male audience, that would be bad. I've studied a lot about this because I ran children's program at ABC. I put on Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and one other in one show from Warner's when I was there. And I am convinced that kids do not think they can get on kitchen tables and fly off of it. (laughs) And I am convinced that when you see Batman or Superman or all the Marvel stuff, they don't really think that they can emulate that. To me, the other kind of violence, the more realistic violence, the street violence, is more disturbing. The, the bubblegum violence is like a cartoon. So I don't know how it's affecting uh, our, our, our civilization. I, I'm much more nervous about the ability to leave a theater and get a gun. Right. Which is so easy. I think that people who watch violent content and it motivates them to commit an act of violence is a whole other psychopathology before they enter the theater. I don't think the film business is responsible for that. Um, you're a man who's seen, as a, as a consequence of the business you're in, you've seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of movies. When you go to the movies now, describe when Michael Eisner, the famous Michael Eisner, goes to the movies. What does he do? Is it a bucket of popcorn? Is it raisinets? What do you? Is it a screening room only in your own home, or do you go to the theater? I almost only go to the theater. <laughs> I go at least twice a week. And what? And what do you do? I often go at ten o'clock or midnight. Uh, can't drag my wife out usually. I'll go in the afternoon. Uh, I can remember even being at ABC when I was twenty-seven years old and having a fight with somebody and saying, "You know what? I'm getting out of here and go to Broadway and go to a movie." So I I do see a lot of movies. Um, I like, maybe it's age-related, I like the dramas, I like uh, the comedies. I'm a little, little, I, I admire the technology in 
the action films. The action films, but uh, my wife likes those more than I do. What's a movie that when you were in charge of these movie companies you made, there must have been obviously countless examples, give me, but give me one example where you're, and I'm being very Hollywood myself right now, you're in a screening room alone or with your associates, you sit there and you go, man, I'm proud of that movie that we made. What's one that really, really, you thought, God, I'm proud of that movie. I love that movie. Well, the problem is the first time you see it, and it's really good, you keep hoping it's going to end quickly. It's like going to a hockey game where your son is the goalie, and you and they're leading one nothing, and you just want it to end because you keep being fearful that it's going to fall apart. Sometimes they fall apart in the first scene, and then you then then, then it's agony. I mean, but you sit there and. If it actually ends and you still are elated like you are from the beginning, uh, it's a great feeling. What's one you're very proud of? What's one that uh, moved you? You said, damn, I'm glad I made that movie. Well, you know, I don't know because there were so many. Of course. I if I think back, I think when, you know, John Travolta and I have had a lot of success together. And we started with Cotter and then Boys in the Plastic Bubble. And then he went into Saturday Night Fever. Right. And that was a leap for us. Big leap. Paramount. It was very early. Uh, Big leap for him. I didn't know that it was a musical. I didn't know the Bee Gees were still alive. Uh, I didn't know that Robert Stigwood, the entrepreneur manager of the Bee Gees, was still alive. Uh, and when you sat down and you saw the main title and the feet walking down the street, you just knew... Instantly, you're on to something. It was on to something. Michael Eisner is still on to something right now. Netflix releases the third season of BoJack Horseman, his animated series about a former sitcom star horse trying to make a comeback this summer. And these days, Michael Eisner is making his mark outside the entertainment industry, too. The Eisner Foundation supports programs that bring young people and the elderly together to solve problems. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. From iHeartRadio, The Don. The definitive 24-episode podcast series on the producer of Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, and Top Gun, the maverick, Don Simpson. Back in the 1980s, Don's behavior wasn't just tolerated, it was encouraged. The film industry gave Don a long leash for his high-class call girls, his alliance with the Vatican-connected Italian mob, the private eye that cleaned up his car crashes and illicit firearm schemes, the Dr. Feelgoods on retainer, the expense accounts for exotic cars and private jets and ski party orgies in Aspen. Don's black market ties were an open secret inside Hollywood, and it was Don's black market connections that led to his tragic death. 
Season 1 takes you into the circumstances surrounding Don's tragic death and sheds light on the unsavory characters that may have been complicit. Listen to The Don on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.